Chapter 17 Reginald had a broken nose, two cracked ribs, a split chin, a bruised spine, a cracked forearm, two chipped molars, and a nasty bite on his tongue. There was little to do but set his nose, bind him from head to toe, and dull him with morphine. But, Tom felt, there was always something comforting about hospitals. The white, crisp starchiness seemed to envelop and heal somehow. They got a private room at the Home for Incurables, which was a blessing, because a large number of the demonstrators were brought in for various ailments, and there was a great deal of shouting, drinking, cursing, fighting, and, coarse flirting. Reginald's face was a mess. Angled metal hung on his nose, a black eye, bruises all around, a stitched chin. He was almost impossible to recognize. "'Poor Reggie,' murmured Klaus, patting Reginald's forehead with a wet cloth. "'I still can't believe you were entirely unhurt.' "'Well, he fought them, and I did not.' "'What do you mean?' "'He was trying to turn the tide before its time.' Klaus dipped the cloth into a cup of water. It was a collective phenomenon, open to control by no man. It has to spend itself like a fever. Hmm, said Tom. Could have been chance. Equally so. Yes, I don't feel that, though. When did you lose sight of him? Immediately, sighed Klaus, his voice softening into lax dreaminess. The crowd hit us like a surf. There was no point trying to swim. The passion of every heart pumping wildly all around me. We were more than men. We were cells in a python, a python striking for the future. Individually, no man knew what he was about. Together, ah, Tom, together we were one. No I, no thou, only a we. I mean, look at the results. Their voices have been heard, and not a single death. "'Flailing arms, flying bullets, and no deaths. "'It is beyond belief, unless one remembers that even, "'or perhaps especially, a mob has a higher purpose. "'God moved in that street today.' "'Tom sighed. Well, he left quite a mark on my brother. "'Things so much larger than the individual cannot be fought. "'The only destruction is in resistance.' Water flows around or over rocks. We follow it or smash. Tom, I cannot tell you what I felt in there. I cannot even say madness, because it only looked like madness from the outside, from above. We all thought as one. If I stumbled, a hand came out and propped me up. I flailed without thinking. A man ducked. But, but it was more than events, more than just men. I don't know. I've never felt such ecstasy, such escape. I felt my whole being, my entire span of skin, every pore I possess, opening up into the white light of purest Godhead. Every difference fell away, and I seemed to merge into the universe itself. It was as if through surrendering myself to man, I opened myself up to God. Such passion, such courage, and terror, such terror. That kind of emotional power is a current which lights the eyes of the divine. We all saw God today. Tom was a little irritated at Klaus's speech. There was something off-putting 
almost narcissistic about wallowing in divine ecstasy while limbs were being broken all around him. But he was too tired to protest. He sighed. Klaus turned to him and smiled. You don't believe me, because you are as pragmatic as a surgeon. But that is all right. Perhaps I am wrong. But I will leave off with one thing, and then we shall return to the mundane world of grief and the knitting of bones. If God was in the street today, then Reginald was struck down by the staying of his hand. And that should give us some comfort. This day will leave its mark on his soul. And if that mark were allowed by God, we cannot but believe that it will be beneficial in time to the world at large. In this view, mourning is just a lack of faith, of perspective, of love for the universe. Klaus smiled a dazzling, gorgeous smile, and then, just as Tom were about to lose patience with his friend completely, Klaus redeemed himself. But... What is this nonsense, when we have not eaten since two? He cried, then leapt up and shook himself violently. It was a habit Tom had noted for some time. Whenever a Klaus returned from his realms of pure thought, he shook his whole torso like an otter spraying off water. Klaus winked at Tom. I will return with sandwiches. Tom smiled despite himself. Well, surely if we were to have sandwiches, the universal will would have supplied them. Through me, he will retorted Klaus, then turned and strode into the corridor. Tom closed his eyes for a moment, then turned back to his broken brother. Chapter 18 Reginald awoke with a start. His consciousness did not rise like a bubble. It erupted like a geyser. He had been struggling in a frozen world of hanging meat, breaking his nails against swinging flesh as cold, hard as concrete. He struggled through to a clear patch, then realized it was the edge of a cliff and fell and fell. He looked around the little room. A radio played softly beside his bed. Some gumshoe was on the trail of a shadowed killer. A dame spoke caustically. Everyone drank too much, fenced with tired words, and never slept. Reginald drifted in and out of consciousness. It was as if, erupting so high from some murky morphine depth, he now bounced. He turned his head. Tom lay in an awkward angle in a folding chair, his brow furrowed, as if he had to concentrate to stay asleep. Reginald felt it coming. It was a rush of tears too wide, too foaming, too insistent to be stopped. A sudden racking sob, which he barely stifled, jerked his head off the pillow. He wept so deeply and harshly that it felt as if he were being turned inside out. Nothing like this had ever happened before. I saw him coming, through the bodies as I lay like a child. Reginald remembered lying on the pavement among the newspapers, folding in on himself as the blows drove his body to and fro. And he came through them and made it stop. Something even more painful slammed into him. 
Would I have done the same for him if he had ignored my advice? Of course not. I would have told him that it was his own damn lookout. He would have had to fend for himself, learn his lesson like a boy with a football. Through a squinting aquarium of tears, Reginald saw Tom shift in his chair. He hasn't got a mark on him. What did he do? I heard words, but my ears were crackling like I was chewing glass from some blow. He did something and saved me. Words. And all this time, I thought he was weak, a dreamer, without substance, who would amount to nothing, who knew nothing of the real world. So I follow that German idiot, and am soundly thrashed, yea, and it may have been almost unto death at the rate they were going, and I was saved by this brother, this brother of mine, who knows nothing about the world. Something else came along, something broken and cold, something so early and dismal that it had no words. But it's such a little fragment, fifteen minutes perhaps, should I be judged a coward for lying on the ground under the blows of ten men? Should he be a hero for stepping in, for once doing something decisive? We cannot judge men by fifteen minutes. Character is habit, not happenstance. He will revert, my young sibling, to all his wasteful ways, to all his sad jokes and vain moralizing. He will amount to nothing in the world of men. He shall cry out his credo from the mountaintops, and not even the echoes shall return his words." Reginald frowned. What the hell am I talking about? What credo? But the tears began again, and he could not stop them. Because we are at war, you know. We struggle for the soul of the world. We are so composed that only one of us can be right. Either I shall win, and all will be as I decree, or he will win, and all, and all but he could not imagine what the world would look like if Tom's beliefs ruled. And what the hell are his beliefs, anyway? They are too tender, too trusting, too naive, idealistic, dualistic. He wants to kneel before his perfect historical heroes. He wants to live among those who do not put their trouser legs on one at a time. He wants knights and round tables, damsels and bright swords, crusades, empires, a world where men do not die but only perish, where there are no illnesses, just fell afflictions which carry men off. No shit, only awful. A fairy tale world where evil men can be killed without regret, where each man is separate, responsible, and can be judged whole, where there is no subtlety in biography, black and white. A world of passion, certainty, and condemnation. A world without compromise. A world of war, in fact. This last thought struck Reginald very forcefully and dried his tears at least for a time. A world of war. This was the worst that could be thought, but the idea rose within his breast. In his mind's eye, bomber aircraft blotted out the sun, Bombs fell continuously, and cities belched up fire and smoke and the ashes of their children. And somewhere in there, Tom is screaming in ecstasy, finding at last a tangible enemy to strike at, to wake himself from his lethargy. But there will be no world after another war. 
Reginald's head rolled on his pillow, the starched cotton and little blue lines scraped against his cheek. His ribs were aching. These sobs are killing me. But another image unlocked more. He was young, two or three. He was dancing around Tom's chubby sitting frame. Tom could not walk yet, he was sure of that. And Reginald was dancing around Tom, feeling a mad rage in his heart. He wanted to drive Tom's soul out of his little body, to replace it with an inert puppet. He was dancing around his younger brother, snarling, chanting, Tommy is a baby, Tommy is a baby. Tom's face was white, bewildered. His eyes followed Reginald's every step. Reginald pressed his face right into Tom's, barely resisting an urge to twist Tom's ears off, only because that would leave a mark and result in punishment. The thought came to him now in his hospital bed, I must destroy without a trace. And back in that nursery so long ago, he remembered Tom's thin voice crying out, No! And Reginald remembered being well satisfied with the madness, the tension, the endless frustration of that cry. All was proceeding to plan. Reginald? Reginald's heart took a staggering lurch. He wiped his eyes convulsively. Does it hurt very much? asked Tom, struggling to his feet. Sort of. A little. Do you want anything? A glass of water? Are you hungry? No. Tom smiled, leaned forward, and imitated a gruff, Rugby coach from boarding school. Into the wars, have we? Reginald did not smile. Tom's face loomed above him. All memories seemed to scatter from his mind, and he felt cold fear. What's the matter? asked Tom. You're not badly hurt, nothing broken, thank God, except your nose. A few years you'll be right as rain. The tears came again, and Reginald turned his face away, feeling a helpless rage at his lack of control. Now, now, murmured Tom, reaching forward tentatively to stroke his older brother's hair. Amazingly, Reginald let himself be comforted. Tom, he sobbed, you know I couldn't stop myself. I knew it was wrong and hateful, but I couldn't stop myself. Obscure topics between siblings spoken with enough emotional force require no explanation. You were a bastard murmured Tom. I was a bastard. I don't know why. I woke up every morning wanting to treat you better, but nothing ever came of it. I struggled against even worse things. I know. But it doesn't matter that I saved you from what was more terrible. Reginald's voice broke completely. Because I didn't, I didn't save you enough. I could never turn myself around. I have such black thoughts. I could not stop them. I was always on the edge. Tom took a deep breath and frowned. I don't suppose there is forgiveness in mean, you, Tom. Tommy, I have no right to ask for that. But I did not want to do it, any of it. And if I had had my choice, but it was not my choice. I had no choice except to fight against what was even worse. I don't know why. I don't know why. Reginald said Tom softly. Reginald's voice stopped, his whole frame froze. 
Tom tried to turn his brother's face towards him, but the neck was still frozen, locked in place. "'Shh,' he said, keeping pressure on Reginald's chin. "'Look at me.' Reginald's left eye, all Tom could see, was wide. It stared from a dark welt like a tiny egg in a black saucepan. Reginald's neck did not move. "'I tried!' whispered Reginald fiercely. "'I tried!' Tom withdrew his hand. Reginald's head did not move. Tom sat back in his chair and lowered his head. His heart stewed in petty irritation. "'The son of a bitch asked nothing about me,' he thought, his head thudding. "'How was it for you, Tommy? How do you feel? No, it's nothing but I hurt, and it was so hard for me. Bullshit. Bull goddamn shit!' And so, brother turned from brother. One stared at the wall, feeling terribly exposed. The other stared at the floor, feeling terribly ignored. Chapter 19 Klaus's family was from near Dresden. The Hepner men had all been Protestant priests who could trace their own lineage back to Martin Luther's time. They had held firm to their faith despite the tides of religious wars which had flowed back and forth across Germany since the 17th century. Klaus's father, whose name was Martin, had all the standard beliefs and prejudices of the German clergy. He hated the French for their rationalism, envied the British for their empire, pitied Americans for their decadence, and loved Germany for its destiny. For Martin, the Bible was not metaphorical or allegorical. It was the truth, every word whispered from the mouth of God. Translation errors? Impossible! God whispered into the ears of the translators as much as he had whispered into the ears of the original writers. Three hundred years from the death of Christ to the first recording of his life? Immaterial. Time means nothing to God. The idea that the word virgin was a mistranslation of the Hebrew word for young woman was nonsense. If the Bible said Virgin Mary then virgin she was. Contradictions in the Bible only seemed like contradictions to the limited mind of man. For instance, it was a pressing question in the Hepner household as to whether Adam had a belly button. Martin posed this to Klaus when his son was quite young. Klaus had replied, No, father, Adam did not have a belly button. Why not, my boy? Because Adam was made in the image of God, and God, being eternal, was never born and so could not have a belly button. Very good. Now, are we made in the image of God? Yes, Father. So why do we have a belly button if Adam and God do not? Because of original sin. Go on, said Martin, tapping his pipe slowly. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God cursed Adam with work and Eve with childbirth, so we have a belly button because of original sin. But we are made in God's image, nine. We are, our souls are made in God's image. So the purpose of the belly button is, is to remind us of the fall and that we are sinful and degraded by nature. So why do children who cannot sin have belly buttons? Because although children cannot sin, they are innately sinful by being human. Very good, beamed Martin, handing his son a licorice. 
There was great intellectual rigor in the Hepner household. Klaus's mother, Renata, was silent and pious and tireless and prone to scrubbing things until her fingers bled. She was one of those mothers, and there were quite a lot in Germany at the time, who took one phrase and organized their entire lives around it. Renata's was, cleanliness is next to godliness. This edict was so ground into the Hepner children that Klaus clearly recalled believing that angels had wings in order to be able to dust and sweep heaven better. There were a number of sensations which, for Klaus, defined his childhood. The first, and foremost, was itchy. This, he only found out much later, was because his mother was incessantly scrubbing at him. His skin was forever as sore, raw, and as dry as the moon. Klaus itched so much that he could never sit still. It was torture, and was exacerbated by the danger that if his mother caught him scratching at anything, even the backs of his hands, he was back in the icy tub of endless scrubbing. One of Klaus's greatest childhood pleasures was to steal away to a place where he could never be found, the rectory washroom was a favorite, and scratch himself until he almost fainted with joy. Another sensation was, unfortunately, rectal itching. This emerged with puberty and probably had something to do with his relentless sausage and bread diet. Klaus had a hemorrhoid at the age of 15. He walked slowly, like a cowboy. Having a bowel movement was agony. It was almost impossible not to cry out when his sphincter clenched to pinch off his excrement. His attention was also drawn to the obscure uses his body had for rectal muscles. They contracted when he sneezed, coughed, squatted, or got in and out of a chair, even when he jerked awake during a falling dream. Another sensation was midnight gas. This odd sensation, also related to a poor diet, involved lying in bed and feeling that his innards were about to burst. Shifting gas caused sharp pains within his abdomen, which caused him to leap up out of bed. Farting made him weak with relief. It meant that he would not be jabbed by gas for at least ten minutes. The randomness of this affliction caused him considerable loss of sleep. And, of course, there were the good old German beatings. There were seven children in the Hepner household and one wife. That meant, on average, at least one beating a day. Of course, it was right there in the Bible, spare the rod and spoil the child. But there was so much more to it than that. The good book also contained the rule of thumb, that a man could not beat his wife with a stick of a greater thickness than his own thumb. Discipline was love, of course. God threatened man with hell because he really wanted man to get into heaven. And what did the body really matter? What was a thrashed buttock compared with everlasting fire? This was all made very clear. To Martin's credit, or detriment perhaps, he was no hypocrite. He genuinely believed that his calling was to drag sinful people through the barbed gates of heaven. Sometimes he dreamed of himself as a firefighter, rescuing people trapped in a burning building. You do not stop to argue, he thought. You just grab and drag and forgive all kicking. For Martin, God was real and present and watching and judging and remorseless. He hated 
his own body, its recesses, lusts, infections, and stenches, all the indignity of its endless gases and excretions. It was all so ignoble, so base, so revolting. He yearned for heaven for the end of all inner wars, to be finally out of the reach of the flesh, of the world, of Satan, sweet Jesus, what relief! In his waking life, Martin sometimes felt that he was on the run from predators, from demons who loped along on horned knuckles, sniffing the silver scent of prey. One does not rest when one is pursued. One does not turn around or compromise or negotiate. He also felt, with his children and sometimes with his wife, that they were a horse he was riding, also with the baying demons not far behind. I whip them as I would whip my horse, so that we may both escape the horned wolves. After whippings, Martin was very solicitous of his children. After beating his eldest daughter for giggling during one of his sermons, he spoke thus over her prostrate form. Greta, my sweet, do you understand the sin of anger? Yes, father. And do you understand that your father is not driven by the sin of anger? Yes, father. So can you tell me what your father is motivated by? By justice. And? And by righteousness. Do we condemn God for the sin of anger because he sends sinners to hell? No, father. Why not? Because God does not send people to hell because because of free will we send ourselves there. Exactly. God gives us every chance. He has given us the Bible, which contains everything we need to know to be good Christians. He has given us priests to explain it all to us. And he has given us free will, so our choices have value. And so we may further thwart Satan when we reject him. Now do you understand why I have beaten you? Yes, because, because it was the devil who made me laugh, and the devil is in my flesh, and the devil can only be punished in the flesh. And my punishment, does it arise from the sin of anger? No, father. Only out of the virtue of justice. As he grew, Klaus became quite a challenge because he drove his father close to the sin of despair. Klaus was talented, it seemed, at everything. He sang, he danced, he played every musical instrument. He read French, damnable French, with its humanists, its rationalists and atheists, as well as Latin and Greek. He loved archaeology, geology, and fossils. He was an excellent storyteller. Martin could never quite believe that his eldest son's recounting of biblical tales was not without its subtle mockery, but could never find any objective reason for punishment, and so stayed his hand. With every new talent, Martin felt more and more excited. Clearly Satan has chosen me for special testing. He knew that the world... He knew that the kind of worldly abilities that Klaus possessed would be great temptations for them both. This level of excitement could scarcely be maintained without courting emotional exhaustion, and so Martin veered from hysterical excitement to pathetic despair. Martin truly believed that mankind was in danger of being laughed out of religion. The rise of science, the temptations of Darwinism, and the evidence of fossils— the material successes of secular societies, the growing agnosticism of Western leaders, all this smacked of a certain elemental showdown between the truth of the Bible and the pleasures of worldly constitutions. 
Surely, he felt, it was clear that a final battle was shaping up the whole world over. Satan squatting in his stinking lair, scratching complex diagrams into sulfurous rock, had surely come to the greatest fruition of his genius. By injecting base science and earthly reason into the churning mix of human thought, he was surely preparing for his greatest triumph. Mankind will believe that God was an immaturity to be outgrown. Scientists, doctors, and psychiatrists will replace the most holy church. France and England, beaten back physically since time immemorial, will have finally won by sending over their invisible armies of shallow philosophers. The greatest danger to our souls is not hatred of God, but indifference to religion. Satan gnashing his teeth because his great seduction of man through sex and greed failed utterly has now devised his greatest final assault on the city of God. He no longer wants to seduce us by provoking desires which must be sated, but by drugging us with physical comfort and all the playthings of modern science. Cinemas, travel, ships and cars and aeroplanes, radio, man's love of little pleasures. It is no longer our great lusts which will undo us, but our little luxuries. Man will no longer trust in God and pray for his soul, but rather trust in doctors and take penicillin. Klaus was interested in science and did very well in mathematics and physics, though less well in biology. Through his son, Martin learned a good deal about modern ways of thought. What was wonderful, what gave Martin such hope about the future war between science and God, was that Klaus seemed perfectly indifferent to the attractions of science. He enjoyed physics, but never seemed to consider that physics sort of did away with God. He loved mathematics, but never considered that the strict logic of geometry could destroy God in one clear afternoon of thought. Klaus was perfectly split, perfectly poised. There was the world around him, which had its interests, intellectual challenges, and pleasant pastimes. And then there was the world of God, which was perfect, eternal, and the only final focus of a worthwhile intellect. The great danger in Martin's eyes, was that his son was also impervious to physical punishment. He almost seemed to relish it, which meant that his son had the attention of a very strong demon. Pleasure in pain, thought Martin, lashing his son into a kind of bloody oblivion, is the pleasure of a demon who loves being mastered, since it will make his final mastery all the sweeter. Of course Satan would be interested in Klaus. Even his mother could see that. If Klaus, the son of a priest, came down on the side of science, humanism, and reason, then Satan would have struck a great blow for evil. But if, on the other hand, Klaus, who knew so much about science, came down on the side of God, then there would be great joy in heaven, and Satan would have to take a snarling, smoking step back. This is why Martin was in such a state of tension about his son. Klaus was certainly important, and sometimes Martin felt that his son might be the one who could tip the balance either way. This felt similar to Martin's seminary days, when he, like every priest-to-be, imagined what it would be like to be the second coming. Late one night, when Klaus was seventeen, 
Martin had the following conversation with his wife. "'It is my belief that the boy must go to the West.' "'Yes, father. "'To be truly tested, he must be dropped deep in the camp of the enemy.' "'There was a pause. "'That carries great danger.' "'Yes, yes, I know. "'Yet if he is destined to write Christ's words across the sky, "'he must go into the desert.' "'Renata's knitting halted. "'He shall be beyond our reach. "'Yes, but that is true, or will be true, anyway.' Besides, it is not our reach which is important, which will save him. God will protect him. Is this what is in your heart? Because, yes, do not be afraid. Because I know that he is a great strain to you. God may be placing this desire in your heart, but Satan also may be at work. God may say, send him into the camp of our enemy, that he may be tested. But Satan may also be saying, Send him to me, that he may be mine. There was a long pause. Martin felt very sad then. He turned and stroked his wife's cheek. I am a very lucky man, he said. You are an angel, sent to watch over me and keep me from hasty judgments. Renata smiled. God speaks through me as well. Of course. And the only answer is in prayer. Martin kissed his wife's forehead then, and they knelt down to pray. It took six straight hours, and by the time it was over, his knees were red, his back was in agony, and he could no longer loosen his neck muscles. But the answer had come to him. Klaus was to go to England, to the camp of the enemy, and there would he either love God the more, or serve Satan the better? Chapter 20 It seemed almost foreordained that Tom was going to fail at All Souls. He was intelligent, creative, and a hard worker, but could not, or would not, grasp Marxism, and so had no chance. After Reginald's brief breakdown in the hospital, things had rapidly cooled off between the brothers again. Tom's natural loyalty was without reason, since it was without reciprocation. It is, perhaps, the eternal lot of younger brothers to treat older brothers well in the hopes of undoing cruel histories. At the age of six, Tom had been rolled in a barrel by Reginald and his friends until Tom had vomited all over himself. Later, Reginald had jumped off a go-kart going down a hill, leaving Tom to plough into a thick iron railing. The following year, and these are just highlights, while Tom was swinging from a rope under a railroad bridge, Reginald had pushed him back out when Tom's arms were failing, despite his younger brother's protests, and Tom had fallen onto sharp rocks. Reginald, disgusted by Tom's blubbering, had gathered the other boys and left him wailing by the stream to dig the stones out of his own flesh. The following year, Tom had hit their tennis ball on the roof of a garage. He had convinced Tom to go and get the ball and then had told Tom that he would easily be able to jump down. Tom had tried, but his legs had buckled and his front teeth had gone deep into his left knee. This sort of thing happened year after year, 
and while it was certainly not to Reginald's credit, it was not much to Tom's either. Reginald's sadism remained constant, but it could not be said that Tom's learning curve rose to meet it. This was, perhaps, because Tom had no other real allies within the family. Quentin cared little for him, and Ruth's rather obsessive fawning had little to do with any desire on her part to get to know her youngest child. So he trailed Reginald around, hoping against hope to turn a heart which had no purchase. Reginald saw Tom's academic struggles and took great pleasure in them. He was not without sympathy, but could not understand why Tom was having such trouble with such simple topics. Reginald's personality flowed with the times. In the early thirties, people who were demanding, acerbic, abstract, and decisive did very well. Tom, having none of these qualities in any great quantity, did not do as well. One evening, about a month after the riot, Tom, Reginald, and Klaus were sitting in the common room about a week before a midterm on modern economics. Look, Reginald said, it's not really that difficult. A man works in a factory. He makes something worth one pound. The factory owner then sells it for two pounds. The surplus value is one pound. Marx says that that should go into the pockets of the worker. Tom scowled. But why? The factory owner built the factory. Sure, but he did that by underpaying the workers who built the factory. So that's not valid. All right, said Tom, making another note. Okay, so alienation. Well, a capitalist makes the most money out of an assembly line. That was the great discovery of Henry Ford, that Jew-hating son of a bitch. Instead of one worker making a whole car, which would require real skill and be a real craft, now 100 workers make one car. Each only gets to tighten one bolt, so their skills as craftsmen are destroyed. They are alienated from the process of building the car. They are turned from craftsmen into machines. But Ford pays the workers twice what they were making before, right? Yes, but he's still making much more than he's paying them. Tom shook his head. But if society wanted workers to be happy for one worker to make each car, then they would buy cars which cost twice or three times as much. Reginald snorted. No, they wouldn't. That's the logic of capitalism. People are selfish. That's what Marxism is designed to eliminate. People would rather have a cheap car and miserable workers than an expensive car and happy workers. Everyone's cheap. Everyone's greedy. Everyone's selfish. Then the government takes over the industries, right? Yes, nationalization is key, Reginald put on a Russian accent. Workers control the means of production. But if everyone's selfish and greedy, then won't those in the government also be selfish and greedy and the party? Well, that seems like a paradox, interjected Klaus. But you have to remember that with the rise of Marxism, you also get the destruction of false consciousness. Human nature has been corrupted by class conflict. When you get rid of class conflict, you change human nature. Wait, is that a theory or a fact? What do you mean? Well, if a Marxist says, hand over your rights, and don't worry, human nature will change after the revolution, he'd better have some sort of proof. I mean, it's called scientific socialism, right? Well, yes. So, let me ask you this. Marx called himself the Darwin of society in that he felt he had explained history according to a new science of his own invention. So, did he collect facts and then invent a theory or invent a theory and then collect facts? 
Why would that matter? Asked Klaus, glancing up from his book. It's more scientific to look at facts and then come up with a theory. Otherwise, it's likely to be mere prejudice. I mean, in our classes, all we hear about in 19th century English history are the lower class uprisings, the Peterloo Massacre, the Todd Puddle Martyrs and Bloody Sunday. These are sort of unusual events in English history. And the death toll is plain silly. Peterloo, six deaths. None of the Todd Puddle Martyrs were put to death. But they were disgracefully humiliated and transported. Yes, but martyrdom is not exactly defined as being sent to Australia, right? And Bloody Sunday? One death. One. So we have seven deaths in 100 years. And class conflict is supposed to be the basis of society? So my question is, did Marx look at these few deaths and say, I have found the basis of world conflict. I can't see how. Reginald smiled. Oh, my dear brother, our purpose here tonight is to help you pass this midterm with enough panache to secure a scholarship. We can wrangle over Marxism all we want, but that will scarcely serve our aims. But why can't I argue against Marxism? I mean, a physics teacher won't fail you for disproving some theory he believes in. Reginald laughed out loud. Even Klaus smiled. I mean, Tom continued, according to Marx's theory, by the end of the 19th century, capitalism was supposed to be a complete failure. Capitalists should no longer have been able to expand production. Their profits should have been plummeting. Wages should have been falling. The proletariat was supposed to be starving and desperate. Nothing of the sort occurred. Living standards continued to rise. Until the war, murmured Klaus. But the war was started by Germany, no offense. And Germany was by far the least capitalistic country in Western Europe. Germany had the welfare state, progressive taxation, a huge government, income redistribution, state loans and grants of every kind, and state protected unions. That's not capitalism. Klaus sat up, his cheeks flaring red. Reginald held up a hand. Let's not get into the who started the war debate again. We have no time. This is the point, Tom. Do you want the scholarship or not? Tom's face was pale. If I have to argue something that I think is false, oh, God, I don't know. Reginald smiled. Tell me what else you think is false about Marxism. It just seems deep on the surface. It's actually shallow deep down. Come on, cried Reginald, snapping his fingers. Rigor! All right, so... In Das Kapital, Brother Marx says he has discovered the natural laws of capitalist production. And these laws and the results they dictate are inevitable, right? Yes. So what is the middle class doing on the landscape? We're supposed to have two things, a tiny, wealthy, elite of capitalists and a growing, impoverished horde of workers. No middle class in Marxism. How is it explained? Quite simply, said Kaus, propping himself up against the wall. The rich have invented the middle class to save themselves. Marxism came upon the scene, and the rich realized that the jig was up. So they have allowed some wealth to trickle down to the poor to allow the creation of the middle class in order to maintain their own privileges. How do you know? I'm sorry? Well, you have a theory saying the rich will do this, society will do that, and none of what you predicted has come to pass. And so now you say, oh, the rich have changed their behavior. But your theory did not predict that. And even if the rich have changed their ways to protect their power, how do you know? Have they had big meetings at their country clubs and said, all right, now the way to handle this damnable Marx fellow is to allow some more wealth to fall into the hands of the dastardly proles? You're just making things up to save your theory. That's not 
scientific. That's just a cult. Klaus laughed. You are a real pleasure to listen to, Tom. He took a deep breath. Look, you are a member of the privileged classes. It's all right. So am I, in a way. My father is a priest, not exactly a natural bride of Marxism. So our thinking is conditioned by the circumstances we grew up in. We cannot escape the mental habits of our class. We cannot see class conflict because we manage it through our inability to see it. That's the essence of false consciousness. We think that we are examining Marxism impartially, but we are really just defending our own economic interests. Tom smiled. All right. So if I were defending my economic interests, which right now means getting a scholarship, wouldn't I agree with Marxism? It's a little larger than that, Tom, said Reginald. And what about my brother? demanded Tom. If all our ideas come from our class, why do you both agree with Marxism? You should be as blinkered as I'm supposed to be. I don't agree with Marxism, cried Reginald hotly. I mean, not specifically. It's just another tool, another way of looking at things. Exactly, nodded Klaus. Dear Tom, you are a hopeless Manichaean. Hegel's dialectic is quite clear on this point. Values are just a pendulum. First you have untrammeled capitalism, which is one thesis. Then you have absolute Marxism, which is the antithesis of that idea. The final result will be a mixture of both. Mild socialism, controlled capitalism, the middle way. Tom ground his teeth, the middle way. Oh, how I hate that phrase. Let's say you have a man who believes in equal rights for all, and you have a man who hates the Africans and wants them all dead. What is the middle way there? Just beating them up a little every day, killing only half of them? Some things cannot be compromised. Sacrifice is essential for society, said Klaus. The age of the individual is over. Collective man has seen the light and will not be denied. Money, goods, even thoughts are common property. They cannot be left to the control of the individual who is selfish and will use them only for personal profit, not the common good. It is time for people to cast aside their own petty needs and work with their brothers for a common goal, to join something larger than themselves. We are all so in love with ourselves. Our ego is our treasure. We guard it and feed it and steal for it. Vanity. I dream of a world where the individual ego is cast down, trampled, derided as rank selfishness and seen for what it is, the source of all corruption. The coming age, when we submerge ourselves in a group for the sake of general joy. When we say to our brothers not, what can you do for me, but rather, what can I do for you? And that will be a perfect age. Reginald and Tom exchanged glances. They had their disagreements on Marxism, but always found Klaus's dreamy reveries about the coming age just a little creepy. All right, said Reginald, opening his copy of the Communist Manifesto. Back to the sex life of the bourgeoisie. Apparently they all slept with their workers, with prostitutes, and shared their wives like candy to boot. Tom grinned, and all the while Marx was diddling his maid, who was by any definition, one of his proletariat workers. The next day, Tom was reading in the smoking lounge, enjoying the rank air of the many pipes, when Hart came up to him. Tom, he cried, sliding with a slippery creak into a leather chair. How have you been? Busy, muttered Tom. His desire to keep reading fought with his distaste for rudeness. Look, I wanted to apologize for the other day. Last month, I'm a little volatile at times. Think nothing of it, 
Tom looked up, putting his book aside. Are you getting ready for exams? Sorry, that was stupid. How is your swatting coming along? Tom hesitated, then decided to take the plunge. Well, I have to tell you, I don't think I'll be around next year. Hart's face felt almost indecently. What? Why? Why not? Tom gestured at his little pile of red-bound books. I can't stomach this socialist stuff. Of course you can, cried Hart indignantly. How self-indulgent can you be? Tom almost laughed. It was the last thing he expected Hart to say. All right. Of course it's all rubbish. If it's consistent, it's proven. If it contradicts itself, well, then it's the dialectic and it's proven as well. Hart leaned forward, lowering his voice. You should try Freud. Looks like an Oedipus conflict, so it's true. No evidence of one. It's repressed. Something completely opposite, a reaction formation. There's no way out of these modern mazes. The only question is, what do you want to do with your life? Tom smiled. Well, that's rather personal. Hart's hands escaped from his lap. He grimaced. Of course, I know, but still. All right, don't tell me, but listen. You have to have a degree to get anywhere. I want to teach, so I have to learn rubbish in order to teach sense. That's all right. You're disarmed on a battlefield. You damn well take up a weapon of a fallen foe. Fine, shamanic fool. You just have to relax your mind for a while. Forget about logic. It's like getting an injection. Just pretend that it's good for you. It is, and there's no other way for now. Good Lord, thought Tom. Everyone is a revolutionary, except me. Hart shifted in his seat. Marx is simple, he continued, his voice slightly lower. Property is theft. The rich screw the poor. When the poor rule, everything will be wonderful. It's not too difficult. Unless, oh, you're an atheist? Well, yes, but what has that got to do with Marxism? It's just Christianity with the state replacing God. All right, a pretty Old Testament God, but nonetheless. Why do you think Marxist ideas have spread so quickly? Anything which catches on fast is just the same old thing in a new suit. Only things that are slow and grudging are really new. Good Lord, I must be the thickest person in the room, sighed Tom, but at least I can row. While you have this huge stone-age slab of common sense, said Hart eagerly, I can spot it a mile off. It's very Anglo-Saxon. No wonder you can't get this German stuff. German? Well, sure. Kant in philosophy, Hegel in history, Marx in economics, Freud in psychology, Nietzsche in ethics. Well, not ethics quite, but you know what I mean. Everything we utter comes from the Germans or nearby. So no wonder you're having trouble with it. Won the war like hell. Am I the only one? Well, you are sort of old school, so maybe? No, I don't think so. Are you happy? No, don't answer that. Look, I pressed on your time enough. Too much, as it is. Listen, good luck on your exams. If you need anything, just let me know. Hart jumped up, shook Tom's hand, then vanished into the hanging smoke. Tom took a deep breath then sank back into his armchair. He recalled this moment for many years afterwards. For the first time in his life, a thin tendril of empty sadness rose slowly in his chest. This tendril was cold, deadly, hopeless. A shudder ran through his body. He felt a chill despite the stale warmth of the room. 
Outside, a group of grubby rugby players ran past the window, their cleats beating on the concrete. Tom closed his eyes, and the sound was transformed into the endless marching of an endless army. Tom's depression lasted for exactly nine days. It never took hold of him completely. He could drive it back with the image of Catherine, but it kept creeping back when he was distracted. As the days passed, he became very afraid that it would become a permanent fixture of his inner life if not combated most strenuously. Four days after its first appearance, after his brief and rather manic conversation with Hart, Tom took his exam on modern philosophy. 1. Discuss whether in the German ideology Marx does what he thinks materialist history should do, i.e., not explain practice from the idea but explain the formation of ideas from material practice. 2. Describe clearly Marx's account of the materialist-idealist conflict given in the German ideology, 12 Marx. B. Discuss the implications of Marx's account for the study of philosophy, 13 Marx. 3. Marx and Engels argue that systems of ideas and beliefs derive from economic needs and class interests. A. Describe the basis of their argument, 15 Marx. B. Does their argument constitute a strong criticism of systems of ideas and beliefs? 10 Marks. 4. Marx stated that, quote, The philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. The point is to change it. End quote. In the light of this statement, discuss Marx's criticisms of Furbach and describe what you consider the statement's implications are for the study of philosophy. 5. For philosophers, one of the most difficult tasks is to descend from the world of thought to the actual world. A. Explain what Marx meant by the distinction between the world of thought and the actual world. 10 Marx. B. How successful is Marx himself in making the descent from the world of thought to the actual world in the German ideology? 15 Marx. 6. Discuss the importance of Marx's concept of production in the German ideology. 7. All ideology is pure illusion. In what ways, in the German ideology, did Marx and Engels believe this to be true? 8. The German ideology emphatically rejects the idea of human nature or human essence. Discuss. 9. In what senses is the German ideology concerned with what Marx calls the liberation of man? 10. The communists do not teach morality at all, Marx. How much moral discussion do you find in the German ideology? Tom stared at the questions, and the bottom just sort of fell out of his personality. He felt unable to move his arm. It was impossible to concentrate. The sounds of all the other scratching pens were horrible, the kind of hissing, scraping which brings on nausea and vomiting. All his knowledge seemed to have fled, or, where it had not, seemed to hang in the night sky of his mind like so many senseless constellations. Tom shook his head and leaned forward. A story came to him about a student who had taken cocaine before an exam and wrote feverishly for three hours, and was interviewed by his examiner a few days later. Can you explain this? 
the examiner asked, opening the exam booklet to the first page, where the first line was chewed through, black with ink. The student realized that he had written all his answers on the same first line. Come on, Tom, he frowned. Hart's question returned to him. What do you want to do with your life? The response was startling. Not this, not this and seemed to drive his desperation back a little. Come on, you coward, pen to paper! A clock chimed. A quarter hour has gone by. Finish this and you can daydream all evening. But bargaining did not seem to work. His thoughts did not cohere. Right, anything! Tom scribbled a few catchphrases on the inside cover of his exam booklet. The alienation of the division of labor, surplus value, man is machine, root of class conflict, all value extracted from the laborers, price fluctuates around value as determined by labor theory, but profit could as easily be defined as a result of capital, or labor plus capital. He had to scratch that last one out. No heresy in the house of Marx. I cannot betray my country. Tom suddenly felt his gorge rise. England was the land of the free market, and he knew some really nice, decent chaps who were capitalists. Anyone can start a company, many poor folk become rich, and many rich fall from grace. He took a deep breath. Now is not the time for inner debate. He found his brother's head bent down, and imagined all the thoughts passing unimpeded through his brother's arm, his fingers, his pen. With all the limp flexibility of a broken machine, Tom thought oddly. He leaned back, lifting and squaring his wide shoulders, then leaned forward. Well, if I'm going to go, let's go with an honest flourish. He picked up his pen, licked the tip, and wrote, the Mensheviks were doomed to failure because of their dislike of violence, which the Bolsheviks were more than willing to use to attain power. Tom's first brush with depression lasted nine days in total. It started four days before his exam, peaked on the day of the exam, and then ended four days later, when his marks were posted, and he realized that not only would he not get a scholarship, but he would never be allowed back. And so, in the autumn of 1931, Tom found himself ejected from structure and free to face his future without preconceptions. And so, like many before him, he began to fall.